Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Hey, many of you know my wife, Carolina. Uh, she's at the 10-minute party. You may have met her at one point or another. And uh, we have some differences because uh, we have like cultural differences. Uh, she's Colombian, American. You know, she grew up in Miami. I grew up in New England. Listen, Miami is like no other place in the United States. So if you grew up here, you're different. That's all I have to say. But, um, you know, we also have a big age gap. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, I look young. Thank you. I just... <laughs> So sometimes we don't realize that there is a gap between her and I. And um, she likes to tease me about my vision because it's been getting, should we just say, a little less clear over time, you know? So what happens is when she sees me squinting at something, trying to make it out or see it kind of off in the distance, she goes, you see, you're getting older. You're getting older. And I'm like, uh, no one likes to admit that, right? None of us like to admit that we're getting older. Um, Do you guys? Anyone here? No, right? And here, I have a personal plan, and I probably said this before, a personal life plan to live to 140 years old. That's my goal. Yes, it's true. Ask my wife. That's my goal. But uh, so when she tells me, you know, you're getting older, look at your squinting, you can't see very well. And I say, no, this is not a sign of age. It's because I have a medical condition. I tell her, I have myodysopsia. Myodysopsia is what the word looks like right there. And I bet... You probably have myodysopsia too. Myodysopsia is common among millions of people. You see, it's not some type of disease and uh, it's not going to kill you. Don't worry, you're going to live. And uh, what it does do though is it causes you to see spots, literally, spots. Now, myodysopsia is a condition where you see stuff that floats in your vision. Is anyone familiar with that? Resonate with you? Like I kind of tried to get some pictures of it if you look it up. They're called floaters, like this stuff right here, these little things. Can you see that? If you can't see it, you need help. But <laughs> Go to the next one. might help a little because it gets darker. You can see like, things like that, right? And what happens is they float in there. That's why they're called floaters. And like, if you've ever done this, the best way to see them probably is look at the blue sky or look at a blank piece of paper, and then you see this stuff in your vision. And what happens, you tend to try to focus on it. You ever do that? And you're like kind of focusing, and it goes... And you're like, I want to see what that is in my vision, you know? And you're like looking and someone comes up, what are you doing, dude? You know, like, uh, and uh, that happened to you, anyone here? You go, okay, you're with me. You see, a lot of you have myodysopsia. Listen, so here's what I say to her. She goes, so she'll be like commenting about what's going on because over my, uh, as I've gotten older, I've seen a lot more. I don't know about you guys. I see like more and more of them. And I've kind of looked up online, like what is the cause and how do you get rid of them? And I'll tell you, most, all the medical things, they all have different versions of what it is. So I've come to the conclusion they have no idea. And uh, nor do I know how to get rid of them. But what I say to her when I'm looking at something, I'm going, honey, hold on a minute. As soon as this thing floats by and off of it, because it's on it, then I'll be able to see it. And she's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, honey, it's true. Just give me a second. It just has to pass by. And so myodysopsia for me oftentimes makes it difficult to see, right? Do you guys agree? Especially when I'm reading. You have to let that little thing go by. And so myodysopsia oftentimes makes it difficult for me to see things. And I don't know if there's a medical term for myodysopsia of the heart. But I think 100% of humans probably have myodysopsia of our hearts. You see, of course, I mean this in a spiritual sense, right? We have things floating around in our lives that make it difficult to see. And more directly to the point, make it difficult for us to see God. 
Now, the problem is that a lot of times in life we have these seasons where maybe we don't feel God is near us or we don't see God and we're feeling distant or we're feeling detached from him. And we long to see him in our lives. And sometimes we would just wish that God would like part the clouds, right? And just show up to reassure us that he's there, wouldn't we? And I think we all want to see God. And that's the question on many of our hearts. You know, God, if you're there, show me. Now, why would we want to see him? Because God brings us hope. I mean, it would often it would make me feel a lot less crazy if he would just show up once in a while, right? To make an appearance like, okay, maybe I'm not as crazy as I think I am believing in God. And it would also give me maybe some strength. Like if God showed up, man, it would really give us strength to carry on. Yes, God is with us. Or sometimes if he showed up, maybe it would make us feel like we could do something greater or bigger than ourselves, do something beyond ourselves. And it also just might answer a bunch of questions if he were just to show up one time and say, okay, now I feel reassured. You see, Solomon took an inventory of everything the natural man can do. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is his commentary on life without God. And so he speaks about buildings and women and empires and businesses and pursuits of pleasure and eating and vacations and power and prestige. And he comes to this one conclusion that without God, it's all nothing. It's meaningless. This is what he writes. It's in your outline. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. This word vanity, it's all vain. It's not worth it. This word is used 36 times, almost 36 times in a 12-chapter book. Imagine three times. It's vanity. It's vain. It's worthless. It's not good. Nothing can come of it. He's saying with God, without God, excuse me, everything has no meaning. But if we could add God to the equation, right? If we could see God clearly, if we could kind of remove the myodysopsia of our eyes, and see him, things would probably make a lot more sense to us. We've been listening to the greatest sermon ever by Jesus as he's standing on a mountaintop talking to thousands of people. And we're in a series called Contrarian's Guide to Happiness. And we've been focusing on the Beatitudes one by one. And now suddenly Jesus is speaking. And imagine the crowd as they're going through these Beatitudes when they hear this next one. It's blessed are the poor in heart for they shall see God. Now, I suppose if there was anyone like falling asleep on Jesus, you know, like I stand up here and once in a while I see you got somebody falling asleep on me. You know, it's like so maybe I'm hoping somebody fell asleep on Jesus wouldn't make me feel as bad. But like a crowd of thousand people, somebody's nodding off and then all of a sudden see God. What? What did you just say? Did back that up. Can you rewind that? Did you just say we will see God? I, I want to know more about this. Could you could you stop for a minute and tell us about that? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about what it means for us to see God. I want to illustrate this point by taking us through a journey of the life of Jacob. So if you want to get ahead, in a couple minutes, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 25. So go ahead and turn there. But you may know who Jacob is. Jacob is the father of Israel. He, from him, he had 12 sons. His 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he also has a brother named Esau. In fact, Jacob's brother is a twin. And when they were born, Esau came out first. And then Jacob came out with his hand holding on to his ankle. 
Now, at that time, I don't know if they knew when you had twins or not. I mean, we have sonograms and all these heartbeat things. Maybe they could listen to the heartbeat. But all of a sudden, imagine this kid comes out. We always all red and hairy. And then there's another one attached. It's like, whoa, we got two for one. Look, you know, and he's like pulling himself out with the, by the ankle. He comes right out with them. But here's the thing. Even though they're twins, Esau came out first. So Esau is the older one. Esau has the birthright. Esau is the firstborn. And the firstborn has all the privileges. He will become the head of the family. The firstborn is the one who gets the birthright and the inheritance. But here's the thing. God had visited the mother, Rebecca, while she was pregnant. And God told her that she was going to have these two twins, these two children, and that the younger or the, excuse me, the older would serve the younger. And he says through Jacob, the line of promise would come, not to Esau. And even though this promise is known, and even though Jacob knows this, Jacob, throughout his life, decides to take matters into his own hands. So what I want to do is take a look at that in one of those instances right now, and it is Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 29. It says this, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I am going about to die. So what is my birthright to me? And Jesus said, excuse me, Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, I don't know what your relationship is with your brothers and sisters. If you, if you have them, I have four brothers and one sister, three brothers and one sister. And like, if my brother was starving and he came to me and like, even if he was being overdramatic, I'm going to die. You know, I'm like, Hey dude, here, have something to eat. And I wouldn't charge him anything for it. Right. I would, I'd give it to him for free. He's my brother. And What's interesting here is we get this like picture from this little vignette, this little scene. We see and get a glimpse into the heart of both of these two people. Esau despises and could care less about his birthright. Oh, yeah, just take it. And Jacob will do anything to get it. So we're getting a glimpse into what's going on in both of their hearts. And if you have your outline out, if you don't, go ahead and pull it out. The first point is this. Seeing God starts with our heart. Seeing God starts with our heart. What seems to stand out very clearly in this beatitude is that Jesus is concerned with our heart. You know, and our heart is a very vital organ, isn't it, in our bodies? Because it affects every other place in our body. Because when blood is pumped into our heart, the blood then gets pumped to every portion, to our fingernails, our toes, whatever, you name it. So whatever starts in the heart, right, will eventually impact every part of our body. So if you put like nutrients and good vitamins and all this stuff into your body, it goes into your bloodstream and your blood, your heart then pumps it to your brain and all your other organs, right? And you become healthier. But if you were to put toxins into your heart, something that's not good for you, then it will pump that to all areas of your body. You know, when a police officer pulls somebody over for suspicion of DUI, driving while under the influence, driving under the influence, right? They, what do they do? They get you out and then they want you to blow into this little thing, right? Now, what happened was when you were drinking the alcohol, the alcohol mixed with your blood. 
And it went into your heart. And then your heart pumped it into every organ that you have. It went into your brain. It went into your liver. It went into your lungs. It went into your muscles, right? That's why we act all funny and weird because the, the alcohol's affecting our bodies. And so then he, then you find yourself blowing into this thing. And what is registering is the alcohol content that now made it to your lungs. See, that's what happens with our body, with our heart. Our physical heart affects every single part of our body, whether it's good for you or whether it's bad for you. And the same is true in a spiritual sense. Anybody see the Avengers movie recently? All right, good, a few of you. Listen, it was an awesome movie. I saw it and it was great. It was one of the best superhero movies that I've seen. I would classify it among them. I wouldn't say it was maybe the best because it's hard, you know. I like Spider-Man. But hey, it was good. It was amazing. And I would recommend that you go see it. Now, don't do what I did and leave before the credits are over. Because afterward, feeling foolish when everyone told me you should have stayed because you missed a bunch of other stuff. So you got to stay for the beginning of the credits and then all the way to the end of the credits is what I'm told. And people have described to me what happens. So I want to encourage you, do that. Now, the best line in the movie, by the way, is Hulk smash. And you'll know when you see it. That that's the, mo- that's, a gr- that's the best line. But here's what happens, and this is kind of a little bit of a spoiler alert. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot, so you can actually listen in and you won't, you, it won't reveal too much. But if you really like, no, I don't want to hear anything, just cover your ears, okay? Now, the Avengers are all gathered in a laboratory. And they're all talking, and they're talking about what their next plan of action is, and where they're going to go, what they're going to do. And what happened is they captured the weapon of the villain. And the weapon happens to be in the laboratory with them. And as they're talking more and more, this weapon starts to affect their emotions and their hearts. And so as they're talking, they start to get argumentative. And then it's it's a little bit more argumentative and they're starting to talk back and forth. Next thing you know, they start battling each other. Because this weapon that affected their heart had an outward reaction. Because where your heart is, what's going on in your heart, generally dictates what's going to happen with you in general. Listen, people who are depressed, right? They're having a depression here in the heart. It often has a physical result, doesn't it? We can't sleep or we don't want to get out of bed, right? Conversely, if you fall in love, okay, right? Man, you're like living in la-la land, right? Things can be like falling down all around you and you're fine. What? Someone just hit my car in the parking lot? That's a shame. As long as she's in my life. It's like, right? We don't care. Everything can be bad, but you're in love. Because where your heart is, it kind of decides what's going on with us. Because our heart can control our emotions. It controls our outlook on life. It controls our opinions of others. You name it. You know, how is it that two people looking on at like a sunset can attribute it to two different things? Right? We're, we're staring at the sunset and somebody might say, wow, nature is so amazing. You know, that was my best Carl Sagan voice, I guess. And then the other person would look on and say, man, look at the handiwork of God. Right? We're looking at the same thing. And yet one person, depending on where their heart is, attributed to God and the other person attributes it to something else. And that happens often in our lives. You know, people uh, uh, say this, you hear somebody say something like, wow, God really showed up for me on there. And I saw God do this. And you're like... Sounds like a coincidence to me, right? You ever hear that? You're like, I think it's just a coincidence. But they're like, no, it was God. 
And it's the same circumstance, but they're attributing it to, to two different things. One thinks it's a coincidence. One thinks it's a God of wins. I stole that, okay? I can't take credit for that. And I didn't know you were going to laugh at it, by the way. Listen, though, if your heart is pure, then everything else will be pure, right? But if there's contamination in your heart, then that's going to spread to the all areas of your body. That's what it says in Titus in, in the Bible. Listen to this. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. You see, our willingness to see God really starts right here. It starts right here in our hearts. Because the heart is the center of our lives. So it's natural that Jesus would say this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It makes sense because the heart is what controls our lives. It's the heart that affects the whole of us. And it affects what we see. But not only did Jacob get the birthright, he also got the patriarchal blessing. You see, the patriarchal blessing in those times was the father, the head of the family, at one point or another, to the eldest son, when he was getting old, when the, when the, when the, the, when the, the head of the family was getting old, he would call in the son and then he would pray a blessing upon the son as, as if symbolic of passing over the idea that you're now the head of the family. Now, he tells, uh, Isaac is his father. He sees Esau and he says, Esau, listen, I'm going to pray for you. So do, go do this. Go out, go hunting, kill something, make me a stew. Come in, bring me that stew, and then I'm going to bless you. Well, Rebecca, the mom, overhears this and she says, no, this is for Jacob. I need to get Jacob in here. So when Esau takes off and goes, she goes and gets Jacob. and She says, Jacob, listen, go kill a goat really quickly. I'm going to make some stew for you. And you go through Esau's hamper, put on his old clothes so you stink like him and put on some fuzzy, you know, garments so you look like you're hairy and go into your father. Now, Isaac is blind, at the, almost practically blind. I think he has myodysopsia too, but like to extreme level, you know. And so he can't see very well. So... Jacob kind of dresses up like him, prepares it, gets the food, makes it the way Esau would make it, and he brings it into him. And then Esau's like, oh, you smell like him, you know, you, you, you feel like him, you must be him. So he gives him the blessing, and he prays this awesome blessing over him, and then Jacob leaves. Then Esau now walks in, and Esau walks in, and, and he's got his stew, and he's like, hey, father, bless me, I'm ready. And he's like, uh-oh. I think something's wrong here. And they figure out what happened. And now Esau is distraught. He wanted the blessing. So he goes, Father, can, can you not bless me too? So the father prays over him, but it's not the amazing prayer. It's not the amazing blessing that Jacob got. And so he prays over Esau and Esau, um, he actually prays that Esau will serve his brother because God was controlling that. And Esau is upset. He can't see straight. He's so mad. And he swears if he sees Jacob again, he's going to kill him. Now, this is not like a brotherly beatdown that you guys know about when you were younger. It's not one of those. He is serious. It's for real. And so his parents fear for Jacob's life and Jacob's fear for his life. And they're like, listen, you got to go now. You leave, man. Take this, you know, take this knapsack and head out. You're going to go to my brother, Rachel or Rebecca's brother. And your uncle and far off land and you're going to live with him because we're afraid Esau's going to kill you. So he takes off running and he heads toward uh, his brother and Her or his uncle in Haran. Now, listen, we're going to read about that in 
uh, verse in chapter 28. So if you want to flip over just a couple of pages. There's this scene where he's running and he has to take a rest. And so here it is. I'm going to read in verse 10. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set upon the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had had put his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob, Jacob made a vow saying, and listen, underline this word, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Now underline this next one. Then the Lord shall be my God. So Jacob's running for his life. He gets tired. He lays down. Man, he doesn't even have a pillow. So he takes a rock, right? He puts it for his pillow, falls asleep, has a vision. He sees a gateway to heaven. The angel's coming down to earth and back up to God. And he's like, this is the gateway of heaven. He wakes up. God gives him this amazing promise. And he wakes up and he puts this, uh, his pillow down and he pours some oil on it. And he says, this is Bethel, the house of God. That's what that means. And what I find is very interesting is Jacob's response. God's saying, this is all the stuff that I'm going to do for you. It's not conditional, but this is what I will do for you. And then we get to Jacob and Jacob says, if. Lord, if you do these things, then I will. Here's the second thing in your outline, the second part. A pure heart is an undivided heart. A pure heart is an undivided heart. The, the word pure in, in blessed are the pure in heart is a term in the Greek that was used when they purified metal. They would say that it was pure after they had melted it down, took out all the contaminated contaminants, separated it from all the metals, and then it would be down to just what it was. If it was gold, it was just gold. It was pure. This is the word that he had used. No impurities, no contamination, no other things floating around inside of it. Nothing but pure. And this word pure in this sentence refers to undivided, not double-minded, not having anything else in there with us in our hearts, nothing else floating around. When I was in college, and this was a while ago, but I had a, a few pro, uh, computer programming classes. and They're very common, I imagine, today. But when I was doing them, they weren't as common. Uh, in fact, people really didn't have PCs. Very few. If you had a lot of money, you had a PC. 
but you didn't have a personal computer. Instead, what you would do is the schools, the colleges then would have like a laboratory and they had what's called a mainframe system. Anyone know what a mainframe? I see a couple of people shaking hands. Okay, heads. What happens is you have a room where the giant computer brain is. Right. All the memory, every all the things that are going on are in this room, all these big computers. If you walked in there and then all these lines went out in all these little terminals. So you would walk into a computer lab and you would see all these terminals. And a lot of them look like this. I got a picture for you just like that. And I worked on like these computers and they all they have is a keyboard and the screen. But the computer really isn't there. The computer is in another room. And so all these people would be working on them. And because most people didn't have PCs, you would go to the lab. And of course, you'd have to check in like you're going to play racquetball. You know, I'll take this time slot so I can work on my computer. And you would pre-write it because it would take you forever if you just tried to dream it up and write it on there. Of course, that's what I would try to do. And uh, what happened was because it was so packed all the time, they would be open 24 hours, the lab. So you could go into this building in the middle of the night and work on your program. So often I found myself doing just that, mostly because I'm a procrastinator. But I would be there working with my friend Scott because we both had similar classes. So he'd be programming and I'd be programming. And uh, man, it can become very frustrating. Can you imagine? Thousands of lines of code, right? You enter all those in there. And when you're done, you press the go button to see if it's going to work. And Right? Now you gotta, you gotta debug this program. You gotta figure out why it didn't work. And you're going through all these different places and algorithms. Now here's the thing. My friend Scott was not a good programmer. And he would get so frustrated. He would take that, that monitor right there. He'd pick it up and slam it back down on the table as if that was gonna fix his program. And see, the thing is with Scott is that he had a problem because his logic wasn't that good. You see, when it comes to programming, that's the basis of programming. You have to have your logic right. If your logic's not right when you're programming everything, then it's not going to work. And logic usually went like this. And these are very common statements, at least in the, in the, in the programming languages that I was using, are if-then statements. If X equals such and such, then go to this subprogram. If Y equals this such and such, then go to this algorithm. Usually you had your equations right and your algorithms right. It was really trying to figure out the logic and make sure it did what it was supposed to do. So if you enter this or you do that, then the program has to do this. And here's the thing, because Scott wasn't good at it, Scott would have loved it if there were no if-then statements in programming. That would have made his day, because then he wouldn't have to figure all this out. And when it comes to God, listen, it's much the same way. He doesn't want any if-then statements with us. You see, in programming, it's necessary. But with, when it comes to our hearts, when it comes to our hearts, there really should be no place for the if-then statement. You see, the problem with an if-then statement is it's conditional, right? It's a conditional statement. If-then creates a conditional heart, a wavering heart. If-then is never really committed to one purpose because if the situation changes, if the conditions changes around us, then so does our heart, so does our purpose. So Jacob pulls this if-then statement with God. God, if you do all these things, if you, then you can be my God. How prideful or pretentious does that sound, right? I'm like, God, if you bless me, if you do these things, if you bring me back here safe, then I'll allow you to be my God. Then you can be my God. He's his God anyway. Listen, if we find ourselves saying if-then, To God, it should tell us that we're not really fully committed. Right? Listen, if then, 
is always the place that will keep you wavering and on the fence when it comes to God. If they will say they're sorry, then I'll forgive them, right? If, God, you do this financial thing for me, then I'll tithe. If, God, I just get by this one situation, then I'm going to devote more time to you. But right now, I'm going to spend my time on this. God, if you make me successful, then I will serve you. If, God, you reveal yourself to me, then you can be my God. I mean, how many times have we been right here? Right here where Jacob is right now. Jesus said the greatest commandment is this. It's in your outline. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Everything could be summed up in this one verse, this one commandment. The undivided heart. If you love me with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, the undivided heart trusts God. The undivided heart follows God. The undivided heart puts God first no matter what. The funny thing is that God appeared in order to tell Jacob exactly what he was going to do. This is what I've been doing for you. I'm watching over you. I will watch over you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I am going to bring you back to this place without condition. God promised to Jacob these things no matter what. God had been doing it all along, if you think about it, right from his birth. But Jacob couldn't see it. He just couldn't see it. See, what Jacob doesn't realize is that God's presence in his life is not a conditional thing. And for you and me, God's presence in our life is not conditional. God was with him, period. You see, some, interesting enough, Jacob somehow thought that the gateway to heaven was found in Bethel. Right? Here's where I find God. But here's the thing. God is not found in a place. God is found in our hearts. And that's what he didn't understand. You see, Jacob's heart is divided, so he fails to see that God's with him all along. And because his heart's divided, and if our hearts are divided, we will always have trouble seeing God right in our midst. If that's you today, then you will too. Well, it's 21 years later. Jacob makes it to his uncle Laban, and he lives there 21 years, and then he kind of burns that bridge, so he's heading back home now back to where his land is, back to where Esau's waiting for him. But now he's got two wives. He's got 12 children. He's got a bunch of slaves or servants. And he's got herds of, of, of animals. And as he approaches this, getting closer and closer to the land, he's getting fearful and he's sending out people ahead of him trying to talk to his brother to make sure his brother's not going to kill him by the time he gets there. And he gets to the stream that he's about to cross. And I want to look at that scene really quickly. It's in... Verse, uh, it's in chapter 32, so turn a couple more pages. Verse, uh, it's chapter 32, verses 24. That's where we're going to start. So there he is by the riverside, and then he sends, finally sends all of his family over, even his wives. They all leave him, and then this is what happens. Then Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. The third point in your outline is this. We will see God when we surrender our heart to God. We will see God when we surrender our heart to God. This is the pinnacle moment of Jacob's life. He gets to this point all his life. He'd been doing everything his way, making it happen himself, even though God wanted to do it for him. He finds himself once again in this moment where he's overwhelmed, where he fears for his life. Maybe you felt like you've been in a place like that before. and You know how it is, right? Doesn't seem like anything else can save you. You can't do it under your own strength and you really need God. And he finds himself wrestling with this man all night long. He just keeps wrestling. And even though it really happened, it's very symbolic of the struggle that's going on in his heart. That he's wrestling with God over these issues until he finally comes to the point where he realizes he can no longer do it himself. And he comes to the bottom of himself. And when he surrenders, when he holds up the red with a white flag, when he finally says, I give up, it's then that he declares, I have seen God face to face and lived. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What will they see? What will we see? What does God look like? The scriptures tell us that no one has ever seen God. I mean, that's what it says in the gospel of John. Listen to this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is the, in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. You see, the world has seen his son, who he himself is God. And he's revealed the nature of the father, right? So we see Jesus and we understand what God's nature is like, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he's sacrificial toward us. So if we know Jesus, we should know the Father in heaven. And scholars believe that this person that he wrestled with right here was Jesus himself, the incarnation of Jesus. And there's other places in the Old Testament that Jesus seems to appear in the form of man, God in the form of man. But as for seeing God the Father, no one's really seen him. That's what the Bible tells us. I mean, Moses is the only one that ever comes close. It says in the Bible, in the scriptures, that to the other prophets and the other people, so when we read here that it says that God spoke to them, it says that he comes to them in visions and in dreams. But with Moses, he says, I speak to him face to face. Meaning that he spoke to God like I would give a a word and he would answer me back. And all these other answers that we see, they were either through signs or visions or whatever, but with Moses, he actually spoke audibly, but he never really saw him. Moses one day is on the mountaintop meeting with God. And he says, Lord, can I see you? And this is his response to him. It's in your outline. You cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So the next time someone asks you, why doesn't God just show himself? You say, do you want to die? Right? (laughs) Because if you want to die, he'll show up. I don't know why it is that God says that. I don't know why God's like that. I don't know why that is. 
But God took Moses and placed him in the cutout of a rock. That's what he did. He goes, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Moses, you want to see me? There's a cleft, like a cubby hole in the rock, you know. I'm going to place you in there and I'm going to kind of mush you in there with my hand. And I'm going to hold that. And then I'm going to walk by. Here's what I'm going to let you do. And then when I've walked by and I'm past you, I'm going to kind of remove my hand so you can see me and you can see my glory from behind. Moses never sees him, but he only sees his glory. And the truth is, that's what happens with you and I, is we will experience God's glory. And there's three ways that we do that. What does it mean to see God in your outline? Number one, God working in our lives. God working in our lives. You see, we're going to see God doing some things in the midst of our lives. You'll see him answer prayers. Have you ever prayed about something and then you see it come to pass? Right? And you're like, I saw God's glory. He just did that. You see something, a situation in your life that you never could have orchestrated yourself. My wife says this all the time. She goes, John, it was God. It was God because there's nothing we could have done to make this happen. It was God because I know there's nothing you could have done to make this happen, she says to me. I'm like, yes, you're right. It is God. And we see his glory working in our lives. But also, number two, we see God transforming us. God transforming you and I. You see, you're not the person that you once were. The Bible says this in your outline, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. When we look back on our lives, we see how far we've actually come, don't we? It's kind of like when you've heard Pastor Bob say it probably before we mark the child right as they're growing. And then when we're not near that little mark, we can't tell that they're growing. They look the same to us. But then when you suddenly put them up there, they're like, whoa, you just grew three inches. Because we don't see it necessarily in the everyday, day-to-day thing. But if we look back, we see how far we've gone. You know, when I look back on my life to a distant period, and I see a person that made certain types of decisions and was doing stuff, certain things, and things that I was even ashamed of, and I look back and I say to myself now, Who was that guy? I don't even know who he was anymore. And I see that God's glory in the transformation of myself. And we see it in the transformation of those around us. Number three, though, God is also working through our lives, working in our lives. He's transforming us, but he's working through our lives. See, when Moses came down after talking with the Lord, God gave him the Ten Commandments and gave him some plans to build the tabernacle. And he walks back down there and he doesn't even know it. Like he comes trooping on down with all his stuff and the people start going because all of a sudden he has no mirrors there. His face is glowing. His face is glowing. It's kind of like, you know, things that glow in the dark. You keep them near a light, right? And you walk away, you look at it and it's glowing. That's what happened. He started glowing. And he comes down, his face is like vibrant. It's like if they shine the light as bright as they could on my face right now, and I'd look like, you know, I'm as angelic to you guys. That's what it would look like. And Moses comes down, his face is glowing, and like, you've been with God. Right? And that's what happens in our lives. You see, God, when we've been with God, other people see it. Listen to what it says in the Bible. No one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You see, God's love in you and me is being seen by other people. 
I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's happened to me a few times in different situations, even sometimes standing in the checkout line and somehow you end up talking to somebody and then they go like, they say something to you like, are you a Christian? Have you ever had that happen to you? Like, you're a Christian, huh? You've been with God. And what's happening is people are experiencing God through your life because of the love that God has put inside of us for other people. And even when we don't love them, somehow we're loving them. Because God's able to do that, not us. What if God's glory existed all around us right now and we just fail to see it? Because our vision is clouded. So where are you today? Where are you guys? Are you having trouble seeing God in your life? Do you keep waiting for him to make some kind of appearance? Right? God, show up in this way for me, please. Maybe you're looking for the right formula that's going to help you find him. Or the right moment. or just waiting for that right moment when he's going to appear. Or we're going to a certain place because we think that's what's going to do it. That's when we'll see him. And when the truth is there's just something in your heart floating around in there that's distracting you. We have myodysopsia of the heart. There's things inside there that shouldn't be in there and it's blinding us because it keeps floating over everything we're trying to look at and we can't see God. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you came here to church because you haven't been in a while and you're just thinking, I need to find God and I sometimes feel it when I come to church that that's where I'm going to go. And that's maybe why you're sitting here right now. Maybe you're a person that comes regularly. You've been coming for years. But you walk into this church service Everybody's, the lights are out, the band's playing. You see people raising their hands, praising God, and you're like, I just don't get it. I don't feel it. I I don't get what it's about. I mean, I like the music. I think it's cool, but I, I don't understand what they're feeling. Could it be that today this message is for you? Maybe that you have myodysopsia of the heart. That there's just those distractions that are floating around. So much so that it's making it very difficult for us to see God in our midst. I mean, maybe it's an if-thens that you have in your life. God, if this, then I'll do this. And we're so clinging to that that we're still waiting for the if to happen so we never get to the then and see God. Maybe it's not the if-then, but it's something else. Maybe it's dreams and ambitions that you have that really don't include God. Maybe it's plans that you have that don't have any room for Him. So you keep staying on that plan, but you don't get to the God part. You can't see Him. Maybe it's things that we love. Maybe it's something that you love so much that it overshadows the love that you have for God. Maybe it's unforgiveness in our hearts or bitterness that just are pushing God's mercy and grace out. And so we can't find him. We can't feel him there. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's something else and it's just difficult to find him. It's difficult to see him. And the truth is, as long as this stuff is floating around in our lives, you're going to have a difficult time seeing God.
maybe some of us have known this for a long time. Maybe we already know what some of those things are that are floating. And we've known it and we haven't done anything about it. We're afraid to. We don't want to give it up. What will happen if I do? I don't have the strength to do it. I don't have the power. And so this thing keeps staying in our life, floating in our life, floating over everything that we see and we don't see God because of it. You know, most of us in this world think that God is trying to hide from us. I mean, that's what we hear. That's what the atheists say. Show me God. Why is he hiding? But God is not hiding from us. God wants you to see him. I think Pastor Bob did an amazing job with his illustration last week when he talked about playing hide and seek and how his son was dying for him to find him. And that's how God is for us. God's not trying to hide from you. He wants you to find him. He wants to be found by you. And that's what it is in your life today. God is standing right in our midst, just like he was in Jacob, wanting to do stuff in his lives, but there's too many things in our life that's floating around and we can't see him. And we can't find him. And we find ourselves in the desert saying, where are you, God? Um, I've asked some people to come forward, people who are leaders in the church. And right now is the time to come down to the front of the stage because what I want to do is give you guys an opportunity. Because maybe as I was speaking, things were coming into your mind and saying, yeah, this is something that I need to deal with. I need to give up. I need to pray to God about. So some of those people come down right now. Listen, this is what the psalmist said, David, when he was going through a difficult, dry season of his life because he had sinned so badly. He said this, it's in your outline, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Listen, if you need that today, I'm going to be down here. Pastor Mark is going to come down here. Some of the other guys are going to be down here. And what I want to do, the lights are going to dim. George is going to play a song. And I just want to encourage you, if you right now need to remove the myodysopsia, the spots, the things that are floating around in your heart that are keeping you from seeing God right now, and you need that prayer, then just come down and receive it right now.